Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. We're at the halfway point in the book of Revelation. And the second half of the book is going to go just a little bit quicker than the first half did, too. What we've seen so far is that we've seen the vision of Jesus as the Son of Man. We've seen his letters to the seven churches. We've seen the throne room scene where Jesus, as the slain lamb, takes the scroll with seven seals, that scroll of judgment, so that he can open it. He's the one who's worthy. And as those scrolls, seals, are broken open, we see various judgments that are going to come on God's people. And the seventh seal, when that scroll is finally broken open, brings the seven trumpet judgments. And so we saw the unfolding of those seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh and final one brings the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And that's because the theme of this entire book is the judgment that Jesus is bringing on Israel because they have rejected him and murdered him. They've killed the Messiah. And so there is judgment for that. Today, as we come to the first six verses of Revelation chapter 12, we see a couple of signs that will tell us something about this cosmic battle that is playing out on the stage of human history. And it's good for us to understand something of that cosmic battle because it helps us to know where we are in that story. And that will enable us to know how we should live today in light of what God is doing in the world. So let's read Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, well, the first sign here, this first great sign that John gives is clearly connected to the heavens because we've got sun and moon and stars going on. It seems to be a representation of the constellation Virgo, the Virgin. Several years ago, there was a bit of a frenzy among a particular group of Christians who were predicting that Jesus would return on September 23rd, 2017. And the reason was they thought this verse was being fulfilled. So if the woman is the constellation Virgo, every year during September and October, the sun is in that constellation for a couple of weeks. And then the moon is in or under that constellation for one or two days each month. So during September of 2017, when those two things were converging, you also had the planet Jupiter inside the woman's body, inside the constellation Virgo. And Jupiter is the king planet. 
So you could understand the associa association there with Jesus. And then you have, above Virgo, you have the constellation Leo, which they said has nine stars, plus for a short time during that month, you had three planets that were also in the constellation of Leo, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, plausibly then creating a crown of 12 stars. Well, of course, nothing happened in September of 2017. And there were a number of problems with the theory. Leo actually has more than nine stars, for example. And one big problem, this vision is speaking of a woman giving birth. So it's really more directed to the birth of Christ. It's not about his return. Having said all that, John does seem to be using astral imagery here. We've seen before that he does that. In Revelation chapter 1, we have Jesus holding the seven stars in his hand. And the stars represent the pastors of the seven churches. And then we saw the signs, uh, you know, the, the, the signs of the zodiac were connected to the imagery of Revelation chapter 4 and the throne room scene. So it's not surprising that John would use star imagery or constellation imagery to communicate his meaning. The woman in verses 1 and 2 does correspond fairly easily with Virgo, but the dragon of verses 3 and 4 is a bit more unclear. Some people think it's the constellation Hydra, others think it's the constellation Draco, the dragon. I think the best thing for us to do, because it's really kind of almost impossible to get any certainty on that, is simply to recognize that John is using imagery that was available and familiar to his readers to communicate a historical reality. And the historical reality is really the thing that we need to focus on. So let's ask what these descriptions represent. Well, the child that is being born here is Jesus. That would naturally make us think that the woman is Mary, Jesus's mother, but we should probably be thinking a bit more broadly than that. The woman seems to be Israel, okay? And for reasons that are in the text as it unfolds, it's not just the historical nation of Israel, but it's kind of an idealized Israel. Israel as she was supposed to be, faithful Israel. So this would not include Jews who rejected Jesus, but it would include Jews who were faithful to God. And it would also include the church, the true Israel, that's made up of faithful Jews and Gentiles. And if you're thinking, but wait a minute, the church wasn't there yet when Jesus was born. You're right, but the vision doesn't stop at the birth of Jesus. It goes all the way through his ascension and beyond. Okay, so this, this will become clearer, I think, as we go. There's a number of places in the Old Testament where Israel is spoken of as a woman or as God's wife. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel is described as God's wife, which he clothed in beautiful clothes. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And there's plenty of other places too. But the imagery that John seems to be drawing on here is from Isaiah 66. Okay, Isaiah 66. In this passage, Israel is referred to as Zion and as Jerusalem and she's giving birth. So here's what Isaiah says. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? 
Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Okay, so this passage comes in the context of a prophecy about the kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth. And this kingdom, Isaiah is saying, will come bringing peace with the nations giving glory to God. God's justice and salvation will be seen as he judges his enemies and rewards his faithful people. So what's John's point then in using this description in Revelation 12? Well, the woman is the ideal Israel. The child is Jesus, the Messiah, who brings the kingdom that Isaiah was talking about. The description of the woman using sun, moon, and stars also reminds us of Joseph's dream, if you can let your mind go back to that. Joseph dreamed that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to him. And his father, Jacob, whose name had been changed to Israel, okay, keep that in mind, Israel, and I think our youngest kids learned about that today in their class, that name change. Okay, so this is, this is the man named Israel that we're talking about here. He recognized that the dream symbolized Jacob and Rachel and Joseph's brothers all bowing down to Joseph. Now, in John's day, of course, the family that is descended from all of them has become a nation, the nation of Israel. By the end of the book, we have New Jerusalem, which is described as incorporating the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles in its foundation, in its structure. So the New Jerusalem, the New Israel, <clears throat> It includes not just Old Testament Jews, but it also includes the New Testament church. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. So you could say the definition of Israel has been expanded, what the New Testament calls the true Israel. So in the big picture of the message of the book of Revelation, the nation of Israel, the physical nation of Israel, particularly those who rejected Jesus, are being judged for that rejection. But Jesus, the Messiah, still comes out of the nation of Israel. And as her true king, the people that he gathers around himself, the people that are loyal to him, the people that are faithful to him, becomes the true Israel, Jew or Gentile. And John, as he writes this, he's going back in time a little bit here to the birth of Christ to help us connect the dots. In Isaiah, after the woman Israel gives birth to this son that was prophesied about, she goes on to give birth to other children. Did you notice that? Okay, so you have the idea of she delivered a son, but then for as soon as Zion was in labor there at the bottom, she brought forth her children. So the story of the woman in Revelation 12, the story of that woman continues, carries on, after she gives birth to this son. And if you look down at verse 17 in Revelation 12, verse 17, which we'll get to next time, you see that she has other offspring. And who are the other offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, that description clearly is not talking about national Israel. It's talking about the church. It's talking about true Israel, those who are faithful to Jesus. 
Okay? So that tells us that, that we're not talking in the woman, we're not talking about just the physical nation of Israel. We're talking about an ideal Israel. Israel as she was supposed to be. The Israel of faith, so to speak. In other words, the faithful Jews who believed God's promise and then the church who's faithful to Jesus together. The ideal Israel, the true Israel, continues on in the church. All right, now, the dragon. If we look down at verse 9, there's really no question about who the dragon is. He is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. When Satan first comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, he comes as a serpent. And in the Old Testament, great serpents from the sea, Leviathan and Rahab, represent Satan and evil in opposition to God and his people. Well, here in Revelation 12, the dragon is red, probably because of bloodshed. It has seven heads and ten horns. Seven's the number of completion, and so the seven heads indicate complete opposition. The heads here are like rulers who oppose God. And the horns indicate power and authority. That's just a standard apocalyptic image. And ten means a magnified or a great amount. So the ten horns are great power aligned against this woman and her child. Now some take the one-third of the stars that are swept down by the tail of the dragon to the earth to be heavenly beings or angels who follow Satan in his rebellion. I myself, I'm not sure about the meaning of that phrase. But the dragon lies in wait for the birth of the child so that he can devour it. Specifically, now think about this, it's talking about the birth of Jesus. Remember that at Jesus' birth, Satan leads King Herod to slaughter the children of Bethlehem in an effort to eliminate this newborn king. The wise men from the east came, and what, what was it that led them there? They've seen the sign of the star, okay, that indicated the birth of the king of the Jews. So John is not the first person to see the birth of the Messiah in the stars. And it's interesting to note, as you think about that story, okay, of the wise men coming and, and, and King Herod and all of that, Think about who is in turmoil over the birth sign. According to Matthew, as Matthew tells this story, it says that Herod was troubled, okay, Herod's the king, and all Jerusalem with him. From the start, Matthew is indicating that Jerusalem will be aligned with the enemies of God against the Messiah King. And the chief priests and the scribes are the ones who are feeding the information to King Herod, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but it's interesting to note who Matthew kind of groups together and associates with Herod and his efforts to destroy Jesus, the city of Jerusalem, and the chief priests and the scribes. That's the group that is involved with King Herod in trying to get rid of this baby. Now the wise men, of course, are warned in a dream not to return to Herod and to tell, him, to tell him where the child is. And Herod's furious when he finds out that they didn't come back. And in his fury, what does he do? 
he slaughters the children of Bethlehem in an effort to destroy this king. But Jesus and his family escape to Egypt. Now, Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus are not confined just to his birth. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in an effort to derail him from his mission. Satan entered into Judas to lead him to betray Jesus and get rid of him. Of course, we know the story. That played right into God's hands, all according to his plan. Jesus being betrayed and going to the cross was exactly the means of victory that God had designed all along. And what happens here in the birth story of Jesus, though, is typical of what Satan did all through Old Testament history as well. Just let your mind kind of go back through the story of Scripture. God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. So what happens? Well, Cain kills Abel in an effort to get rid of the godly seed. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is almost given to pagan kings twice in an effort to preempt a godly seed coming through her. In Esther's day, God's enemies sought to completely eliminate the Jews and cut off the line of the deliverer. Queen Athaliah tries to eliminate the royal line, but Joash escapes and the godly remnant is preserved. Satan's efforts, ever since the garden, have been to destroy the Messiah and his people. In the Old Testament, that meant eliminating the godly line or the faithful people of God. But what happens after the Messiah is born? Well, two things, according to the vision that John gives us. First, the Messiah king is caught up to the throne of God. And second, the woman flees to the wilderness. Okay, so first, John says the child is caught up to the throne of God. That's the ascension of Jesus. And here John is giving us kind of the bookend on the other end of Jesus's life and ministry. He's not talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, not because those things aren't important or climactic. What he's doing is he's just giving you the beginning and the end of Jesus's life and ministry on earth. It's bookended by his birth, the woman's giving birth, and his ascension when he returns to heaven. So Satan, who's here on the arena of the earth, that's his opportunity to attack the Messiah. But that also reminds us, the fact that Jesus has ascended, it reminds us of Jesus' rule and reign. He's ruling and reigning now, as we talked about last week. His kingdom has begun. Verse 5 identified Jesus for us as the male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's the language of Psalm 2. We've looked at that many times. Why do the nations rage? The psalmist asks. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, his king, Jesus, the Messiah. But God laughs at them and he will judge them. He's placed Jesus as the world's true king on his throne. The nations are given to Jesus as his heritage and his enemies will be broken with a rod of iron. Satan's efforts have always failed and they are doomed to forever fail. Jesus is the true king. His reign is eternal, never ending. So the child is caught up to God's throne and what happens to the woman? The woman flees into the wilderness to a place prepared by God and there she's nourished for 1,260 days. Well, this is quite literally what happened to the Jerusalem church. 
When the tribulation of the days leading up to A.D. 70 began, A.D. 66-67, the Christians fled Jerusalem and went to Pella. You remember what Jesus said. We walked through the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. We talked about, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation, then it's time to flee to the mountains in Judea. And we saw that Luke, the parallel passage, Luke, the way he says it is, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it's time to get out of Dodge, right? Flee to the mountains. That's exactly what happened. That's what the church did. Because the Roman army came, surrounded the city, and then, for an unknown reason, pulled back. And the Christians in Jerusalem, having seen that and remembering what Jesus taught, left. They fled to the city of Pella. Here's how Eusebius, who's writing in the 4th century as a church historian, described it. He says, But the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation, vouchsafed to approved men there before the war, to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come there from Jerusalem, Then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. What's he saying? He's saying, just before that judgment fell on Jerusalem, the Christians all left. There was no one that was considered a holy person a Christian, left in the city, and the destruction of Jerusalem falls in the judgment of Christ on his enemies. Now, if we look ahead in Roman, or excuse me, Revelation 12, at verses 13 and 14, it's telling us about the same thing. It says that the dragon pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman fled into the wilderness. In other words, when Jesus ascended into heaven, Satan turned his attention to Jesus' people, the church. Satan goes after the church. We'll talk more about that next time when we come to those verses. And the 1,260 days are three and a half years. It's the time of tribulation in Jerusalem and Judea, the years leading up to A.D. 70. It's a short time of intense suffering. But the Christians are in the wilderness, being nourished by God. All right, so that's the text. That's just walking through the verses this morning. And here's the doctrine that I want us to consider, the the, kind of the main point of what we've seen there. Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus and his people are forever doomed to fail. Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus and his people are forever doomed to fail. You can see this as you look at biblical history and you can see it as you look at church history as well. Let me give you one example of each. I mentioned earlier the story of Esther. Esther and her uncle Mordecai, and by the way, I think we're going to talk more about this particular story at Church in the Park next week. But Esther and her uncle Mordecai were Jews living in captivity during the Medo-Persian Empire. And when the king promoted a man named Haman, to be second in command, Haman set out on a mission to destroy all the Jews. Since Esther had been brought into the king's court and had been chosen to be queen, 
her uncle Mordecai said to her, who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And sure enough, God used Esther to be in the right place at the right time to convince the king to rescue the Jews. And the story of Esther serves as a good example for us for a couple of reasons. First, there are no coincidences. In that story, in the story of Esther, it just so happened that Esther was made queen at the same time that this threat came against the Jews. It just so happened that it was her uncle, Mordecai, who overheard a threat against the king. It just so happened that on the very night before Esther asked for the king's help, the king couldn't fall asleep. And he stood up, or he sat up and was reading old history, and he read the account of Mordecai saving his life. It just so happened. But in a world where God is in control, there are no coincidences. Second, Esther reminds us that we should be willing to be used by God. Mordecai reminds Esther, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther was willing to be used by God. And third, this is how God likes to work. Listen to how the author describes the situation after the Jews are rescued. This is Esther 9 and verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The history of God's people shows that Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus and his people are forever doomed to fail. We can also see it in church history. John Fox's Book of Martyrs tells the stories of hundreds of martyrs who were faithful in the midst of persecution. Just one example for you this morning is that of Patrick Hamilton. He was the first Scottish martyr. And having discovered the writings of Luther, he went to Wittenberg to learn from Luther and Melanchthon and then further at the University of Marburg. And eventually he returned to the land of Scotland and he was publicly preaching the gospel and was arrested and imprisoned at the age of 28. And during his time in prison, the Catholic Church tried to get him to recant of what he had been preaching and to return to the Catholic Church. But instead, Hamilton led a Catholic priest named Alice to come to Christ himself. And as he stood on the scaffold, ready to be burned, Hamilton said to his friend, What I am about to suffer, dear friend, appears fearful and bitter to the flesh. But remember, it is the entrance to everlasting life, which none shall possess who deny their Lord. And crying out in prayer, over his beloved nation of Scotland, he said, How long, O God, shall darkness cover this kingdom? How long will you allow this tyranny of men? Well, the spiritually dark land of Scotland would not stay that way. Just over a hundred years after Hamilton was martyred, the people of Scotland would agree to a national covenant pledging faithfulness to God. Even when it seems dark, Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus and his people are doomed to fail. If I asked you, what's the opposite of evil? You would say, good. And if I asked you, what's the opposite of Satan? Very likely you would answer, God. But God is not the opposite of Satan. 
The opposite of Satan would be something like a cherubim or a seraphim that serves God. God himself is completely other. There's the creator and there's the creation and Satan is part of the creation. We can easily fall into thinking that God and Satan are about evenly matched, like yin and yang, two opposite parts that make up the whole. Like the force in Star Wars, there's the dark side and then there's the light side. In Star Wars, if you remember, Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Luke, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. It is all powerful and controls everything. So the idea is that you have the perfect balance between the dark and the light. And George Lucas said that he made Star Wars with the intent of introducing Buddhism to the West. But that understanding is not biblical. It's not true. The universe is not an ecosystem of life force that constantly recycles and feeds itself. No, God is life. God has the power of life in himself. In fact, think about this. It is the power of God himself that upholds the very life of Satan right now. Satan is dependent for his life on God at this very moment. Satan and God are not evenly matched. God is the creator. He's so vastly superior that we would struggle to even find any way to, to express it. God is not threatened in the least by Satan and his most furious efforts to thwart God. I mentioned earlier the timing of the story of Esther. Just when it looked like all was lost, God brought a great victory. The same thing is true at the cross of Christ. Satan thought he had won a great victory. He thought he would eliminate Jesus and thwart God's plan by killing Christ. But just like in the story of Esther, on the very day when the enemies of God's people hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Jesus and his people gained mastery over them. Paul tells the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. That's God's superior timing. It's God's superior plan. Satan and God are not evenly matched. Let me share a couple of encouraging words from some Christians that have gone before us that are helpful things for us to remember as we consider this. First from Stephen Charnock. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he please, whatsoever his infinite wisdom can direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will can resolve. So remember that God is all-powerful. Satan is not. Psalm 9 and verse 2 says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. God is the Most High above all others. And William Plummer, commenting on that verse, says, we need never fear that God will be dethroned or overreached or defeated. He is the most high. Even when times seem dark, God doesn't change. He is still the most high. Now, what difference does that make for us? Well, quite simply, trust him. William Ames said, Faith is the resting of the heart on God. 
Faith is the resting of the heart on God. Satan continues to oppose God, but he's already been bound by Christ. Since Christ already rules the nations, Satan can no longer deceive the nations. That means the gospel has the power to defeat Satan's hold on people. And we know Satan's end is that he will be cast into the lake of fire, while God's people will spend eternity with Christ. So remember that that victory is assured. And it should make a difference for how we live today. I want you to listen to the logic here of what Peter writes. Okay? This is in 1 Peter. And he's warning his readers about persecution. But he talks about persecution and temptation in the context of the dominion of Christ. So I, I did kind of broke this out by color so that you can see this. In chapter 4, Peter tells the believers that to Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he warns them about Satan's attacks. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then he finishes by again saying, to him be the dominion forever and ever. So Peter's calls to endure faithfully are bookended by these reminders that Jesus has dominion. Trust him. Rest in him. His victory is secure. So the doctrinal truth here is that Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus and his people are forever doomed to fail. Now, how does that help us? Of what use is that for us? Let me give you a couple of things. First, recognize that the rage of the culture against Christ and his laws is satanic. Don't be surprised when the true character of it bubbles up to the surface. So when the Roe v. Wade upcoming Supreme Court decision was leaked, I don't know if you saw the video of Senator Elizabeth Warren. She was livid, furious as she was talking about it. And she told you that she was madder than hell well, you should listen because she's on the right track in at least identifying the character of her rage. And when the current resident of the White House can put out an official statement that says, the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court, I think goes way overboard. That, that's a screenshot from the White House website, okay? He's just saying the quiet part out loud. Did you notice what he said? Choose to abort a child. Not a fetus. 
not a clump of cells, not any other language they want to use to diminish the truth of what's going on. That's satanic. So, what should be our response? Well, we pray with the psalmist regarding our rulers who do things like this. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But we shouldn't be surprised. We should remember what Paul said to the Ephesians. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what should be our perspective on this? Well, remember, again, Psalm 2, what does God do? God laughs at these wicked rulers. He holds them in derision. If a child is facing something that's apparently scary, but his father is with him and his father laughs at this supposed threat, that gives the child confidence that this is not something to ultimately be fearful of. So remember that your heavenly father laughs at these wicked rulers. He's already defeated the God they serve. And that gives you confidence to live in the face of that kind of evil today. Another use or application here would be join the battle. Find your assignment. Understand your role in the world. Work to see how God wants to use you in the places that he has put you. Herman Bavink writes, Christ even now is prophet, priest, and king. By his word and spirit, he persuasively impacts the entire world. Because of him, there radiates from everyone who believes in him a renewing and sanctifying influence upon the family, society, state, occupation, business, art, science, and so forth. The spiritual life is meant to refashion the natural and moral life in its full depth and scope according to the laws of God. We've talked about that before. So wherever it is that God has put you and whatever it is that he's called you to, join the battle. Figure out how it is that, that what you're doing, what God is, is, where he's placed you and what he's called you to do, how can that be part of advancing his kingdom in the world? Parents, how do you view the task that God has given you of raising up the next generation of troops in this fight? Listen to the picture that's painted by Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Don't leave the army with a lack of soldiers. Train them for the fight. Another thing that we need to remember is that we should have confidence in the victory of Christ. We often live with the mistaken idea that the goal of the Christian life is heaven. It's not. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the highest goal. That's the priority, the kingdom of God. R.J. Rushduni notes, 
If we believe that the main and final goal of the Christian life is heaven or the salvation of our souls, we will be indifferent to history and the world around us. Because we'll have the attitude that we're out of here. But our personal salvation is not the focus and goal of the gospel, but simply the starting point. The goal is God's kingdom. His purpose for humanity in the world. The essence of man's fall is his will to be his own God, his own source of law and morality. All too often men retain aspects of this original sin in insisting that their salvation is the center of God's plan. God seeks his own glory and purpose. Our place in his plan is not at the center. And God tells us in Isaiah that his plan is that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the future. Our job is to get on board with it and seek his kingdom. So, finally, take provisions for the war. How are we supposed to prepare for this fight? Well, God is the one who equips us. He does it in three ways. First, he equips us by his spirit. The author of the Hebrews says that God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God does that through the work of the spirit in our lives. Second, he equips us through the church. Paul tells the Ephesians that one of the purposes of the ministry of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Soldiers are sent out in squadrons and platoons for a reason. Don't think that you're up for this battle on your own. And third, he equips us by his word. It's the word of God that will equip you with the truth, the promises, the confidence that you need to fight the good fight, to be faithful in this culture. God has given you his word for a reason. The Hamas Abrakel said, a home without a Bible is a ship without a rudder. And a Christian without a Bible is a soldier without a weapon. A home without a Bible is a ship without a rudder, and a Christian without a Bible is a soldier without a weapon. This vision in Revelation 12 reminds us that Satan continues to oppose Christ and his people, but we know that Christ wins. So we have confidence to face difficulty and persecution and opposition in this world knowing that all we experience is part of God's grand plan for his kingdom. So may God enable us to be faithful in every area to which he's called us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to what you have called us to. We thank you for the evidence that is all throughout scripture and all throughout church history that Satan is forever doomed to fail in his attacks against Christ and his people. Sometimes we're prone to forget that in the midst of the fight and when we're suffering from affliction or persecution or difficulties of some kind. But help us to think like Peter and to bookend those thoughts, those afflictions, those difficulties with the truth that Christ has dominion, that he's on the throne. We know Satan's end, we know our end, and we know it because of the victory of Christ. Help us to live in the confidence and hope of that truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.